Hello, everybody. Welcome to Celebrating Cinema. It's me, Hugo, and I'm here with... Tom. Ah, yeah, I'm here. Sorry. <laughs> we're a bit tired, uh, but we've been at the Cannes Film Festival for two weeks, and we're now recording live from the Nice airport. Uh, <laughs> we're in a swanky, not really swanky, wine bar. Well, we got ourselves some rosé, We got right? ourselves yeah. some rosé. We tried to extend the Côte d'Azur vibes. Uh, <laughs> we, we do our best, you know, to extend the festival experience. Yeah, so this is 2022. COVID seems to be over. Cannes is fully happening again. Ooh, there you go. We're really here. <laughs> Airplanes are being announced. And Tom, <laughs> it was your first year going to the festival. What was the experience for you? It's been very interesting to finally be here and see films and also meet a lot of people who have classics we can get and see how that goes. But also just taking in the entire experience of being in Cannes. That's what I really found out. You told me about it and my programmer friends told me about it. But it's it's very different when you're really there. It feels like a, like a Florida beach town taken over <laughs> by a film festival. And, it's, and it doesn't lose that sort of strange almost La Grande Bellezza vibe that constantly runs through that town. Yeah, where everything is beautiful and awful at the same yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so heightened. But at the same time, there are like uh, many sort of film industry nerds running through it to see the new Dardenne movie, right? Yeah. And that's a very interesting experience. But I must say that I was here for the entire two weeks. Now I'm ready to go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not necessarily a place where you want to stay forever. No, and it's really intense. I mean, like, uh, maybe you can tell something about your schedule, because as a film critic, you practically try to see everything that plays yeah, as much you as, do can, your as best. you can. Yeah. Yeah. So how was that this year around? Well, since the pandemic, con has changed their, like, routine a bit more, or their structure, where you can now book tickets online, which has its own, like, myriad of problems, <laughs> but I don't think it's very interesting to go there. But the benefit of that is that usually when I went to Cannes in the old system, mm -hmm. I was in queue for so long, it's basically a whole work week I would be in a queue like right. we calculated it and in 2018 we were in a queue for like 32 hours of the entirety of the festival yeah, which is I just a that, lot yeah. so this year you know you get some more leeway you, you go into the film much easier so that gives me a bit more time to also either rest or write because normally I would wake up at every day at six in the morning to write because during the day there would be no time for it right. and in the evening I would be too tired as well and I wouldn't be focused anymore mm -hmm. because you're watching four or five films a day. Well now at the beginning of the festival I was in a pretty good groove and I could see five sometimes even six films a day and at the end of the festival as it often happens you kind of run out of steam and you need to pace yourself so I saw like two or three films a day which is still okay I would say sometimes mm -hmm. I would like to see more. But ultimately I've seen like 35 films, did like 10 or 12 interviews with directors, which is also frankly a bit quite insane. Wrote like seven articles, something like that. And now here at the end, we have a <laughs> podcast. Right. Yeah, the festival itself is kind of crazy, but of course, everybody every year comes ideally for the films, mm -hmm. unless you're, of course, doing only business. But we also came partially at least for the cinema itself. And I mm -hmm. was wondering what your expectations were and what you thought of this edition as a whole. It's always impossible to say what the edition was as a whole because you miss maybe 150 films every year that you haven't seen exactly. but from the films yeah. that you did see did they meet your expectations or did they give you enough in return for you also going to come which is such a hyped place well I must say that as I said earlier on it's like I was here for a number of reasons not really to see as many films as possible because I mean
mean, at Lab we tend to screen a very specific sort of category film. So there was quite a bit that I thought I didn't really need to see. And then there were like films I really wanted to see from a personal perspective. I, there's a lot of things that I missed due to the meetings that I had with uh, international rights holders. And But we might get into that, that sort of chain reaction of me constantly going from cocktail party to cocktail party to meet people and talk with them and uh, actually, yeah, garnering a lot of knowledge and nice context for the future for our cinema. But that did mean I, for instance, missed the Park Chan-wook and I missed the Robin Ostland film, which I really wanted to see. From the movies that I actually did see, I mean, let's go into that. What were the films that we really liked? I really enjoyed an Australian thriller called The Stranger. Yeah, that one was fantastic. Which was fantastic about the kidnapping of a child. It's Yeah, it's more or less a whodunit, something that felt like a great season of True Detective crossed with Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners, but then it's a movie. It's like I, I was watching and I was like, I'm so happy that this is now a film again instead of like a six seasons exactly. yeah. endless Netflix series. But they're rare like that. Also in the context of Cannes where genre films are still often a bit more like ignored. You of right. course have Park Chan-wook who's like one of the masters of the kind of like detective thriller genre uh, revenge kind of thrillers. Mm -hmm. But these kind of films that are like really raw, quite grim, they don't go to Cannes that often. For instance yeah. in Venice is much more America friendly with films often so you would see those kind of films maybe a bit more but it was for me also very surprising to see it here and it was literally like the film that stayed with me the longest at least in my body after yeah. seeing it because it's just so tense and so dark and so bleak yeah. and the people in it they are like frankly quite terrifying all the way through so <laughs> I, yeah that made a huge impression on me as well I'm mm. very happy that you also advised me to go there because it was not necessarily on my radar because in Cannes you also are kind of maybe expected to see the more like serious grounded mm -hmm. realistic things even though this was absolutely very realistically done but just like very heightened tension all across yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah that was a fantastic film absolutely and would it be your favorite of the festival? Um, yeah as I said I missed a couple of things that probably would have potentially been my favorite but the things that you missed that you just mentioned the Park Chan Wook and stuff I didn't like them right, that much I know I know I know I know I know. but we have differing opinions so I was even amazed that we really agreed upon The Stranger I must say like for instance we went to the Me and Hansel Leuven film that we watched together yeah. which I enjoyed far more than I w would have expected it so um, and I, I really liked the Kelly Reichardt uh, film showing up which I also didn't really expect uh, which my opinion differed greatly from all my programmer friends who also saw it. And didn't like it? No, they thought it was either boring or they thought it was a comedy, but it wasn't really comical. I had no idea that it could even be perceived as a comedy. I thought it was just like this sort of almost ghost world-like film. It was very straight about, uh, Yeah, so it's about uh, Michelle Williams' place, an artist in a sort of school commune. Yeah, it's like a local scene in Portland, I think, exactly, Oregon. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. It's a very Portland film. Yeah, she yeah. makes like ceramic statues of, of women in various poses and colors. And you see all these other people making stuff with different right. like fabrics and materials. You know, yeah. people are weaving things. People are like creating these installations and stuff. It's like the pretentious bunch. Everybody <laughs> yeah. probably knows. Everybody knows the art school kids. Yeah, the art, but now they're adult as well, or exactly. supposedly. Yeah. yeah, it's a scene that when the movie started, I thought, oh, I'm going to hate these people. <laughs> I'm going to find these people so annoying. And then for some reason, the movie just really grows on you. And it has this very languid pace where you take the tension from the stranger, you take that onto the street with you when you go to out of the palais. Yeah. I took the sort of languid tempo of that movie back to me on the on the street. Yeah. Uh, so it's a rather cute film, actually. Partly, of course, due to the fact that 
uh, her cat fights with a pigeon, tries to sort of get rid of the pigeon, and then her... Her neighbor slash landlord slash also biggest competitor in right. the local art scene, who is a bit more successful than our protagonist, finds the pigeon and wants to, you yeah. know, save it. So, of course, she's also the better person who wants to save right. the poor animal. So it's like... Yeah, and it's, she becomes jealous and yeah. actually wants then to take care of the pigeon yeah. again. And It's, it's uh, very yeah. much about this protagonist's frustrations and also, I guess, about this kind of, like inferiority that you perceive of yourself compared right. to others even though she is like in the film also quite a fantastic artist and i read somewhere that there's a lot of autobiographical elements mm. of like kelly reichardt herself into yeah, place into like this that. film yeah. and it makes sense because reichardt still even though i would say she's probably one of the best american directors working right now is often still perceived as a lesser artist mm -hmm. i feel like festivals are only slowly maybe compensating for like ignoring her maybe for too long recently she also got like the ruby muller award at the iffr film festival mm -hmm. so she got some like prestige back but often her films are maybe a bit like taken for granted because they're small for in scope often but in what they give back in kind of like gestures and the way that she examines how humans behave and think without explaining those things too much is quite beautiful i would say that this is a perfect little film as well well the, the funny thing is that i haven't seen everything by her and i always perceived that she was sort of seen as a very navel gazy director in the end i didn't really get that from this film it, even though it's sometimes their characters are a bit austere yeah there is a sort of subtle empathy in her films. Yeah, she's a very generous director, you could say, but she is very aware of the film form as well, and she doesn't, you know, want to emphasize things too much. She just yeah. let things be, so you need to read that out of it. And the pace is quite exact, uh, and as you said, like, uh, languid. But in return, if you follow it, it puts you in a zone where you just have to read the film as it plays out. It's actually, her films are quite straightforward in that sense, but also very rich. And that's a kind of fun comparison with the Mia and Löwe that you just talked about a little bit as well. She now has a film at this moment that we are recording and playing in Dutch cinemas called mm -hmm. Bergman Island which yeah. is a huge bit of auto-fiction as well where it's about a young filmmaker and her like partner who's also a filmmaker and they go to Bergman's island the island of Ferru where Inmar Bergman made a lot of his movies and they're a male and a female couple and she is supposedly the inferior director of the two and she's writing on the screenplay and he's writing the screenplay and there's this kind of like tension that the men are always dominating maybe the woman in the world of arts as well. And well, now Mia Anselove and Kelly Reichardt both have films where you have this female protagonist very much in control of her own arts, very exact in that as well, but still with their own kind of like problems and insecurities that they face in that thing without making it too explicit what those really are. It's just mostly small grievances and annoyances that are part of daily life that you see expressed in the Reichardt film. The Mians um, and Love called Un Beau Matin and Fine Morning is also again quite personal. It's about mm -hmm. a young woman in Paris and her father gets the Benson's disease or he already has that, but his symptoms are becoming more severe and it's kind yeah, of like a form a, of dimension. Yeah, a form of dimension, Alzheimer. but also it has a lot of cognitive influence. So he can see with his eyes still, but he doesn't register what he's seeing. So he's becoming much more dependent of other people to tell him who's in the room, what's happening, what they are doing, where they are going, etc. What I really liked about the film is that it reminded me a lot of Jacques Rivette in this kind of mm -hmm. like sense that it's young like French people going through the town being 
through Paris, being very French about it as well. <laughs> very talkative, you know, a lot of references to literature, to arts, to other such things. But then at the same time, it had this like this beating heart that is unmistakably that of Mian Sanlova, who is also one of those great directors that is maybe slowly becoming more prominent, but is often also a bit overlooked. It was a very warm and generous film. It's much, the emotions are much more apparent than in the Rijkaard. But yeah, it's a film that I hold very uh, dearly and was a beautiful experience watching it together with you as well. Yeah, no, and that I really enjoyed. What else have you seen that I haven't seen? I mean, I believe you have a top 10, right? Yeah. Bring out your list. Finally, the roles have been turned. <laughs> Finally, I have a list. <laughs> well, so before I, I start with my list, I think we have to preface that at the moment of recording, the awards show is yeah. still not being held. That will be held to tonight so we don't know which film will be winning the Palme yeah. d'Or which is a much coveted prize and often you know puts a film on track for many other awards but also for bigger international distribution and it's yeah. a kind of film that automatically will be played in Dutch cinemas and, and perceived as such as a very important film of the year. Also having said that I would say that in general the competition has been quite week this year this hasn't been the best edition of Cannes and there might be a myriad of reasons for it one of them might be of course the COVID, ep COVID epidemic yeah. and just the fact that it's become more expensive and hard and challenging to make uh, films but also maybe that the scope of many of the stories that have been written in a time of lockdown are smaller instead of bigger but many of the great directors that I hold in very high uh, regards as a Park Chan-wook from South Korea or uh, Hirokatsu Koreeda from Japan uh, who has won uh, previously a palm as well with the shoplifters um, Many of those directors for me kind of underperformed and gave me some of their most like disappointing films they have mm -hmm. made so far, which still doesn't mean that these are bad films, like Decision to Leave the Park Chan-wook. There's some fantastic ideas in the film, especially on the visual level, but as a whole, the film doesn't seem to be playing in the same register as An Old Boy or A Handmaiden mm -hmm. or any of his other like fantastic films. Same with Corriera, he's one of the most consistent directors who makes four or five star movies every time right and this is more like a for me a broker which he recorded in south korea it's more like a three-star movie for me it's kind of like a disappointment. together with the main actor from uh, parasite because yeah. he really wanted to work with him right yeah so exactly it's, it's a korean film instead of the usually yeah. a japanese yeah, yeah. Output. and i think he does the korean side quite well but he makes the film a bit like he draws out the story too much and mm. makes it too messy and stuffy and complicated whereas the simplicity is usually where he excels in so the heart of the film is kind of obscured and clouded by all of these other elements so many of the films actually in the competition were not quite good and some also directors were in competition that I just really have at this moment no real interest in anymore because I feel like they're too much part of this like established Cannes family. You can always expect their film to be in competition like the one of the brothers Dardan or right. uh, a film by Mario Martone, this Italian director who's always in the competition of Venice or in Cannes mm -hmm. and his films are just frankly not really interesting for me. So how about the Claire Denis which has oh, been yes. a bit of a heavy hitter? Talking, <laughs> talking about the family the funny thing about Claire Denis, and I think literally this is maybe a theme now in this episode, but maybe in the festival as well, that female directors have often been overlooked by Cannes and been put in like less prominent sections mm -hmm. of the festival. So Claire Denis has rarely been in the main competition with one of her films, even though her oeuvre is spanning back from the 1980s, of course. Right. 
This year she had a film in Berlin, Both Sides of the Blade, uh, with Juliette Binoche and Vincent Lindon, who's right. now the jury president of right. Cannes, which is quite uh, interesting. But then here in Cannes she was also in the main competition, which is kind of like a primer for the, new, the film called uh, Stars at Noon. It's an adaptation of a book from the 1980s about the political tensions in Nicaragua. Um, and it's about this woman who pretends to be a journalist, or she proclaims to be a journalist at least, and this man who seems to be either part of like CIA agency thing or just working for an American capitalist oil company or something like yeah. that. And this kind of like almost fatalistic romance uh, ensues. At the well, at the background, there is basically a civil war going on. Yeah, it's a very typical '70s thing, I would say. Yeah. Like there are many thrillers from that era that kind of do the same thing, and also even what she does here a lot is to bring in the eroticism and lots and lots of sex and nudity combined with the, the sweaty, sweaty terrain of Nicaragua and Costa Rica. Yeah, the funny thing is that I would say that Denise often not very interested, even though she often uses it as a backdrop, like in Bautrevais, while she's not really interested in the conflict itself or in the ideology beneath it. All of her films are more concerned with bodies, with desire, right. with people's like erotic fantasies, with what drives them actually, as a more primal, less rational being. So this film is also in a sense totally baffling and hard sometimes to understand because these people act in a way that doesn't seem to like align with the political situation that they found themselves in. They're very irrational. They're mostly driven by their desire to be with each other and just frankly fuck all the yeah. time. The film is also shot and, and, and like staged in a way that for many people was very puzzling and perplexing. You could even say plain awful. I'm a bit more generous. I would say that I like late Claire Denis in the way that she handles the frame and what she does with the camera. Many, many close-ups, super intense shots that not in themselves are not particularly great shots and also in the sequence might not be great but just the kind of like sensuality and just the kind of like the focus that she has is very particular and it's more important than a cohesive mise-en-scene or telling a story in a linear and like in a neat way. So it's a messy film, as you said. It's a sweaty film. It's a horny film. It's a confusing film. But at least it's a film that does things and no, makes you think yeah, about that things. Yeah, that is true. That is it's true. A film that, that like, is true. In, in a good year at Cannes, the Claire Denis film would be kind of like the whole talking point of the festival and the most weird thing. And then it would be kind of maybe for many people low bar. But in this year where many of the films were quite disappointing. I would say that it's up there with one of the most interesting films, at least, because it gives you something to talk about. It gives you something to reflect on, to chew on. And many other films for me were lacking in that sense. Maybe that's also then my first time being here is that I was really disappointed in something that I would think would be a high roller at this festival. And it ended up being just a train wreck of, the, of a film. I think you are incredibly generous about it. If I might crush, crush for uh, Margaret Qualley, Andy McDowell's daughter, who pretty much has her first real huge role with an auteur in a film apart from that small role she had with Quentin Tarantino uh, and her feet on the oh, yeah, on, the, on the windshield in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, and she, of course she's been very great apparently in the series Made which I haven't seen but if my crush for her wouldn't have been that big, I would have probably walked out of the cinema. I thought it was absolutely, completely incoherent. And there was a metaphor that I sort of, um, far too much when discussing films with people this festival, there's a lot of loose sand and loose ends. <laughs> there were a lot of movies that had great ideas, yeah. uh, but for some reason couldn't bring those ideas together in a coherent narrative or, or even, sometimes you don't need a coherent narrative, but you need something that gels. Exactly, and well, a nice counterpoint 
point then is what is now my favorite film also in my top 10 of right. Cannes uh, of the year which was also in the main competition it was uh, Pacifiction of uh, mm-hmm. Albert Serra he's a Spanish director made a lot of movies in France as well but also a couple of films in Catalonia now he made a film in the Polynesian Islands it's a nearly three hour I would say kind of like political paranoia thriller mm-hmm. but then it's like it's the end point if you would have that as like a piece of fabric right a political right. thriller yeah. and you would rip out all of the individual threads mm-hmm. and until it, it just starts to, starts to like unravel yeah. and it becomes slowly nothing or just this big emptiness in the middle of it that's what this film feels like that's also what you get when you take that time and it becomes this three-hour thing but i do agree that the claire denis is unfocused and maybe in that sense also really not a good film it's interesting nonetheless but the Robert Serra is constantly fantastic and totally enthralling and captivating and hypnotic and it just sucks you in. It doesn't give you a lot in return, as in it gives you images, it gives you fantastic scenes, but it doesn't give you a lot of information of like as to what you are really seeing. But it's something about a French commissionary on one of these islands, on the Polynesian islands, who's kind of like a metaphor for European like for French slash European colonialism and he kind of holds this old vestige in power there and he's like he's middling like in the arts he's dabbling in politics he's doing some like corrupt stuff with a local mayor there's talk of some like tension with some outside forces coming and he just tries to keep everybody happy but mostly himself i guess he just Mm -hmm. wants to suck up all the power like a vacuum and you're constantly kind of like looking at him but also looking at all the other guests at the island because people arrive with boats and airplanes and they go to parties and then you have half an hour club scene where people are just talking and you get snippets of everybody's dialogue and people talk really realistically they you know repeat their sentences and they don't understand each other so they'll say it again and so you get all of these kind of like weird little fragments but it builds up to this something very tense and suspenseful and weirdly mysterious you would sometimes have those scenes in David Lynch films where it's suddenly night and there's just one character maybe on like a ranch or a parking lot or just this kind of like weird liminal space where you're mm-hmm. not sure why they are there or what's happening and somebody comes and they talk and you don't understand the dialogue but you feel it there's something underneath it that's kind of like the entirety of the film mm. which is absolutely brilliant so you don't have to give all the info you don't have to have no, right. a perfectly rounded out story that is like linear and cohesive and brings you from A to Z. You can also give you fragments or impressions of a story. And then if the style is interesting enough and the point underneath it is exciting enough, you can bring that home oh, like, yeah, no. over no. the entirety of three hours. Of course. So yeah. that was like for me a huge feat of filmmaking and also one of the few examples here in Cannes where I could see that the film form was also required to make this work. Whereas right. many of the other films you could say, this could have been an article, this is, could have been a documentary, this right. could have been a book. Cinema, pour le cinéma, like to put it in that French <laughs> way, was hard to come across, I would say, this year. So yeah, the Albert Serrat definitely did that for me. Well, kind of like a no-brainer for me because that's my whole thing is that I really love the Sergei Lushnitsa documentary, mm-hmm. but I think we could talk about it sometime else. Mm-hmm. I think we could even maybe invite him once to be on the yeah, sure. podcast. Two films that might be very interesting to discuss because we also talked about the Cronenberg 
quite long yeah. in our previous yeah. episode or in our kind of like aligning episode. Mm -hmm. But there's two films that I really still, I think, want to mention. One is called AO by Jerzy Skolimowski, the donkey movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we once had an episode about Robert Bresson and yeah. um, we mostly talked about, I think... Uh, oh, Azar Batazar. Oh, Azar Batazar, yeah. exactly. Which is a fantastic film about with the donkey as a protagonist. And now... In 2022, we have another film with the donkey as a protagonist yeah. by this very interesting Polish director who's already quite old. I think he's in his 80s and he's been part of like the Polish art cinemas of the 1960s already. So he's like, he's been going at it for quite a long mm -hmm. time. Quite established inside Poland, not very much recognized anymore outside of it. Very strange film that plays a bit with the OSR Batazar film, but also wants to position it in a more moral landscape, I would say, where it's really a bit more about animal consciousness rather than about the way that humans project things on animals. So it's more like intrinsically from the perspective of a donkey that escapes from a circus and then just, it's a road movie of a donkey. It's kind of like, babe a pig escaped <laughs> but then he's not talking and he's just only perceiving things and reacting and then walking and fleeing and you know eoing just like re it's like him just to constantly reacting to things in his environment which mm. could be people it could be other animals it could be like the weather it could be landscapes and stuff it's a very strange and particular film but at least it also is a film that does something with right. the film language just very weird smoke and red light and strobes and weird electronic music and weird camera perspectives. I'm not sure if the film is consistently also again great or perfect or neat, but at least you see that this Jerzy Skolimowski guy that he's like, I really like this shot we should just use this shot because it's cool right? And it's mm -hmm. just only like this intrinsic motivation to make pretty interesting pictures and to weave that together in this strange little film that makes no sense. It's totally baffling why it exists in the first place, maybe. But it does something. It feels radical, at least. Mm. So I was very happy with that. And then maybe as kind of like a big finale, like a big... Uh, well, a film that will stay with me for a long time, way after Cannes, is actually the new Top Gun movie, mm -hmm. Top Gun Maverick, which had its world premiere at the festival. Tom Cruise was here as well. I wasn't, in, sadly, at the rendezvous with yeah, Tom Cruise. Yeah, my buddies were there, and what they described was something quite funny. I mean, let's be real. I think that Tom Cruise, of all the film stars walking around on this earth, might still be the one who consistently still has that almost non-real charm and that real spark of a movie star absolutely the funny 100%. thing is though that when you see the man and when you listen to him speak it's almost like you're listening to somebody who's not real he has almost become this sort of hyper it's like tom, the hyper man. reality of tom cruise it's like the reference image of tom cruise as a movie star has supplemented the, exactly. the real tom yeah. cruise as a human being yeah. So it's kind of like the mirror image of him, the cinema mirror image is realer than the person exactly. underneath it. Yeah. In, in essence, also due to the fact, of course, that he doesn't really seem to age at all, he <laughs> has become Dorian Gray. Yeah. Right? Exactly. I mean, it's um, yeah. it's it's so bizarre. Uh, so I couldn't go to the the special screening. I was standing outside while uh, three F sixteen <laughs> fighter jets, fighter jets, <laughs> like crashed through the sky, <laughs> and everybody around me yeah. because I was standing like in somewhere at a bar, and we looked up and we 
be like, this is a terrorist attack. Yeah, it was But of insane. course, no, it's calm. Yeah. In the distance, you could see the red, white, and, and blue, blue yeah. uh, sort of smoke that, yeah, that was, was permeating like, from the fighter jets as this super Americanist but French statement on the arrival of Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. It was rather beautiful, also in that weird sort of almost hyper-real way. And th also, this is Ken, you know, that you have like this year Ken is proclaiming to be a more environmentally friendly, <laughs> so the AC is turned off in the cinema, so everybody's like very sweaty in yeah. the cinemas and people don't get a tote bag anymore, which I'm fine with because I don't need one extra tote bag <laughs> in a collection of a zillion, you know, but everybody gets like a reusable water bottle from the Cannes Film Festival right. because that is eco-friendly and then you got like the boom, you fighter, got the fighter jets sliding yeah. over the yeah. cruisette. This is also very funny always, these kind of like critical like contradictions of the uh, festival, yeah. which also make it the festival because if all of those things weren't there, we didn't have those things to complain about or to yeah, right, marvel yeah. about. But yeah, so the day after I saw the Top Gun film in one of the screening rooms, it was really one of the more touching films that I saw here for a myriad of reasons. One, of course, also being the kind of Tom Cruise as this messiah of cinema that still wants to keep the spirit of true filmmaking for a big audience alive. With this film, they really insisted on shooting as much as they could in actual fighter jets while yeah. they are still flying like so you see real pilots the G's are you real. see real g-forces <laughs> right. on the bodies of the pilots including on that of tom cruise who could like he i think he can fly a bit of the plane now i think yeah, it's probably yeah, very yeah. controlled when they do it yeah. but nonetheless those g-forces on his body that you see in the film and you see that impact very very well yeah it's really there you know so this kind of like realism that they aspire to is obviously a, a kind of like an implicit statement against Marvel movies where everything can be faked. Uh, you can and fake this is it of course something which is really an obsession with Cruise because if you look at for instance the Mission, the Impossible, Mission Impossible franchise yeah. where he's constantly hanging from either the Burj Khalifa <laughs> or a fucking jumbo jet. Yeah. When we were in the apartment and a bit hungover we watched that video of him together breaking, <laughs> breaking, breaking his, his fucking leg. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the man the man really goes for it and I think that it needs to be that sort of obsession with doing it live to quote uh, that terrible Fox News anchor, it's really to be applauded because it does bring that sort of visceral blend of cinema back to the screens for those kind of movies. And then what the film also, I think, does very well because it, it works in the same like register as these kind of like legacy sequels where mm. you take a beloved like pop culture product and you kind of reinvent it for the modern times. So you introduce the familiar characters and you in introduce new characters and everything becomes kind of like wrapped up in the same mythology from the original, like Creed did that very well right, as well. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it kind of is like, you could compare it to Creed in the sense that if done well, it achieves a kind of like emotional depth that the original didn't have anymore. Uh, because that one is just too unassuming of itself. It just exists in a vacuum. But now it doesn't anymore. There's mm -hmm. like decades have passed. Yeah. So Tom Cruise in the film also has to wrestle with the fact that he is not relevant in this day and age anymore. So it becomes kind of a meta film about the image of Tom Cruise. And he has to show that he can still teach stuff to a new generation of like Top Gun fighter uh, pilots. Yeah, he has to um, accept that he needs to pass the gauntlet, right? Exactly. That's, that's so that's kind of it. like the passing of the baton kind yeah. of thing is in there. So 
that is already very touching and just done so perfectly well. There's a scene with Val Kilmer and there was recently also a fantastic documentary on Val Kilmer in which you also learn a bit more about his, his sickness. He has uh, cancer, yeah. so he has difficulties with speaking as well at this moment. But Val Kilmer's character, Iceman, is in the movie and he's like Iceman is now this big general at like the Top Gun Academy or something like that, blah, blah, blah you know, all these hierarchical stuff. But then Tom Cruise goes to visit him quite late in the film uh, at this point where like they have to go on a very dangerous mission with mm. all of these people that are still not prepared for it and Tom Cruise now needs some guidance and then Val Kilmer is behind his computer in his office and instead of like having a dialogue he's typing on the computer he's like writing like the things that he wants to say to Tom Cruise and he's kind of like this sage wisdom like just like you know uh, almost kind of like may the force be with you but it's like uh, <laughs> when you know you're already you are ready this is kind of like yeah, you yeah, know yeah. Uh, no clutter but at the end then he also speaks for a little while and you just kind of see that they did it with so much respect and mm -hmm. with so much dedication and with so much love and admiration that often blockbusters now are very cynical and just only feel like a cash grab so when there's just like almost a sliver of like real emotion in it yeah. you really have to covet it because yeah. that's literally what film is made of I would say more yeah. than all the pretty images and then the final thing that I thought was really good about the film is that when the original Top Gun by Tony Scott who also gets the love and dedication at the end mm. by the way uh, when the original uh, Top Gun was made it was peak Cold War you know era yeah. so it was very easy to imagine what the enemy in the film looked like what they were they were of course like Soviet jet pilots yeah and now, of course, also the American imperial project has crumbled or at least has seen a lot of resistance from within and from without. Um, their prestige as a world power is waning. Dwindling, yeah. Dwindling. So the film also needs to justify in a strange way that they still have these missions and that they are important, that we should care. So most of the film doesn't take place on enemy territory or like with any like real targets or real fights, but all take place in this virtual environment where they mapped out the dangerous mission. They need to bomb some like nuclear power plant mm. facility somewhere. And many people speculate that it is kind of like a mirror image maybe of Iran or whatever, but they never really disclose any of that stuff, but they have to bomb something very important. So what they do is the trajectory of how they have to fly to reach this very hard to reach and very dangerous like spot they map it in the computer of the jets so they're only like the real tension comes from flying the simulation wow. rather than actually doing the fighting mm. itself it's only after the fighting already is over that you know things still go awry and there's like actual dog fights which are absolutely phenomenal mm. the biggest part of the film you're just watching uh, computers like simulation flying almost being done they're in the actual jets but they're flying an right. imaginary parkour yeah. And it reminds me, really enough, of one of my favorite films ever, Sully, which is also... <laughs> uh, but of course, it all, it's all, how can you bring it in again? <laughs> it's also a fight against the computer simulation, and it is about like testing the limits of a human being in the face of this digital era. And I think all of these things are also very well done in Top Gun. There's this kind of like... I think there's this snarky kind of sentiment in the film that they are dissing Marvel in the sense that they say, well, your kind of class of... Uh, human piloted planes is over almost because in the future everything will be an automatic drone, right? Mm -hmm. Which could also be kind of applied to this kind of filmmaking. 
archaic in a sense, where yeah. you have actual human beings doing real stuff in front of a camera. We don't need that anymore. We got computers to do that now. So the film is resisting a lot of things and interrogating a lot of things, while also you know pleasing a gazillion people all across the earth. Mm. So that was an unexpected favorite of me at the Cannes Film Festival. I'm like, yeah, damn it, man. This is actually how you make a movie. Mm. Many of the other people seem to kind of either forgot or felt more sloppy or felt less dedicated to cinema itself. And yeah, this is definitely a different kind of beast and it's not playing in any competition. But it was for me a good argument as to how, how you can still make good movies in whatever register you're yeah. operating in. Yeah. Like as a conclusion maybe to this, uh, to the movie bit, was that for you, it, so it, it, it was a disappointing year then. What, what do you think will win the Palme d'Or? Yeah, well, that's always a tricky one because it's a lot of speculation and tonight we will know. Many people are now speculating that the second feature of this Belgian director, Lucas Dond, that his film Close uh, mm -hmm. will win. You don't seem to agree with that, right? I'm not that much of a fan of that film, also not that much a fan of his debut film called Girl, which played in the Uncertain Regard, which is kind of like the lesser of the two official competitions in Cannes. And now with the Sophomore feature, he's in the main competition. This is a huge accomplishment and I applaud him for that. But I feel like he is working in the same register, which is a young person is hiding things from that are part of their own identity from the rest of the world. They're hiding the secret or this kind of thing deep inside them that they have to wrestle with. So basically, if you just study that closely, tension will come because it's a young person. They're not like, you know, they have all of these feelings, all of these hormones and emotions pent up and they need to get a release somehow, somewhere. Yeah. So the whole film is kind of like wrestling with that. Like, how can we show how frustrated he is with himself and how can we find the right scenes to let that be exposed to let him also lose the facade maybe for a moment so it still becomes mysterious it's incredibly well acted it's nicely shot but it seems too slight for me and also too like schematic in a sense the mm -hmm. i think the film is very conveniently written for the director so I, he can like almost kind of like squeeze out the pathos as if it's like a soaked up with a sponge. I feel like many of the more extreme emotional beats that are in the film are not deserved, come close to a form of melodrama that feels insincere for me. I love melodramas when they are small, when they are honest, maybe in a sense, when they are sentimental in, a, in the true sense of the word. And this for me feels too sensationalist almost to be mm. a good melodrama. So. I'm not on board with the film and I would be frankly disappointed if it wins because it would be an extra argument to make that this was not a good year. Right. You want to have an important film to win. Last year, Titan by Julia Durkenau won the Golden Palm and there's also things you could say... Uh, but like, that was a rather shocking win, yeah, I thought, right? I, totally. I, mean, uh, I, didn't but it was, I was happy with it. But in that I, sense, I, I was happy with it as well. There are things that you could say against the film as well and I think that the film... I really liked it when I saw it in Cannes last year but it didn't really age very well for me. But I just... I respect the win. I think it's deserved in the sense that... I still think that her first feature is better than... than I agree. I totally than, agree. Than, than, and that's Titan. always the thing. But, you know, often like with the Oscars as, as well, you know, people get a prize, a belated prize for a thing right. that they should have... Uh, three films prior, they should have won it, you know? That nicely ties into the person that I hope will not win the Palme d'Or. That is Cronenberg. And we will talk about that on another episode because it's, that we actually had a very interesting conversation yeah, about it already. Yeah, very in-depth. Uh, yeah. But uh, that for me, that would constitute 
suit the whole we as the French uh, cinema lovers are obsessed with auteurs as, as the Academy did with like Scent of a Woman let's give him prize for a lesser movie right? yeah, yeah exactly yeah Al Pacino deserved it exactly. for many many films let's give it to one of his like lamest ones yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah so we're, we're gonna find out I really sincerely hope that like something as daring as the Albert Serra film Pacifiction which by the way still doesn't have a Dutch distributor so if you're mm. listening just buy the film and screen it because this is film art right and many of the other films for me just seem like a film vehicle maybe um, I hope that those are not the films that will be rewarded because then we also see more of them and I think the world needs less of those kind of like cliched coming of age stories and more films that actually interrogate with something more profound which could even be literally the thing in Top Gun. That's the funny thing. You don't have to make an obscure film to wrestle with profound things. So we'll find out tonight. Uh, we'll definitely also, you know, you will hear about it. Everybody will hear about right. it. Maybe as a final, final thing that Cannes is not only there for the cinema. And Tom, you've been like, we've been also <laughs> staying in the same house. And often I was in the morning screening and Tom like was getting home in the early hours of the morning. So Cannes is also there for the parties and for meeting people. And could you talk a little bit about what it's like to go into the nightlife of Cannes and just not being in the cinema all the time. Well, uh, yeah, I enjoy the mix. I love cinema, and but I also like meeting people and striking up uh, relationships with uh, anybody around. But yeah, it was just something I I had never expected to to get into that much. But like the first sort of meetings that I had with some people from uh, from France and uh, from Italy and from England led to invitations to parties. And then you come to these strange locations and these weird apartments that look out over the city in these beautiful views. And I've never eaten so many salmon canapes in my entire <laughs> life. But I'm not great at networking or anything. But you strike up a conversation with somebody, they're a Lithuanian filmmaker, and you go out to dinner with them. And it sounds maybe really trivial, but I, I really enjoyed the sort of moving through the entire film industry yeah. and meeting different professionals. I, I went to dinner with some from producers from Holland, which was really interesting because we had these beautiful conversations about how difficult the Dutch film culture is when it comes to, for instance, producing movies yeah. and how how sometimes their frustration with the funding is, yeah, brings them into tricky situations and... You know, because I would greatly enjoy that the Dutch cinema culture would be more than people just seeing a lot of films, which I are doing. But I would also enjoy them. The, the country itself would start producing something that for a longer period of time actually brings Dutch movies to Cannes because there was not a single film screening in any competition. There's a short animation film in well, the Cinema yes, of course, yeah. yeah. But that's a bit uh, damning with faint praise, I would say. I mean, it's... it's um, or praising with that, whatever. Yeah, yeah whatever. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the other way around. But no, so, but yeah, I saw some parts of the nightlife of Cannes that I don't think that many of my uh, fellow programmers had seen, even though at some point they started following me on Instagram and saw that I was visiting these strange places and then they were asking me, how can we join you in these uh, nightly debaucheries? Again, it adds to this layer of Cannes that it's just like, it's a mixed pack of everything. And it's, it's movies, it's life, it's absurd. Yeah scenery where like you bump into random people and go into random places but yeah what i really like still about the festival even though it's sometimes very vulgar and extreme is that it all of it is still grounded in the sense that we're all here for a film right, right. Yeah. but then that is often the starting point and not the end of it. the it's not 
it's the end to a means or not the means to end. You know what I mean. But I think yeah. <laughs> we're all tired. Yeah, after we're all a little bit tired. Two weeks of the yeah. festival. Yeah. yeah, and we have to get our flight. Yeah, we have to I get our we, flight. Uh... Um, so this was our <laughs> humble airport uh, ASMR uh, can dispatch from I, celebrating. I hope it wasn't too cinema. much. There was so much happening around us. I'm happy that that child stopped crying. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out when we re-listen to the podcast if you were bothered by all the children and crying and announcements as we were. But thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back in the Netherlands soon, resuming our uh, scheduled programming. And uh, yeah, will you be back next year in Cannes? I would say absolutely yes. I might not uh, go to the extremes where I lose my voice like I'm doing now, but uh, I will definitely be back, yeah. That's the lifelong art of trying to pace yourself while at the <laughs> exactly. festival. All right, well, thank you. See you later. Bye. Ciao, ciao.